Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome all of you who are in person. Welcome those of you who are online. Thank you for being here on Memorial Day weekend. It's like the second lowest attended Sunday of the year, which means God loves you most. Uh, so we're grateful for that. In-person church, would you welcome our online folks with a round of applause? Thank you for being here. Uh, we thank you for your faithfulness online, for your gifts and tithes and offerings. God bless you. Today is also uh, the last day uh, for Becky Cohen, who is our youth director, for James, who is our communication director, and for uh, Brent, who is our sound engineer. Thank you guys for all of your ministry and your service to this place. Brothers and sisters, give them a round of applause if you would. We do have a plan. Uh, we, uh, we'll, we'll figure it out tomorrow. So um, no, by God's grace, I want to thank all of those staff folks. They've done a great job uh, helping us get ready. And uh, uh, we have uh, teams meeting this week. And, and over the next couple of weeks, it may be a little bumpy, but, uh, but it'll be okay. With your grace, your mercy, we will get through it. We have a plan going forward on how we'll staff and cover these things. God is faithful. God is good. We are in our second sermon in this Vacation Bible School series, and um, I always am amazed at how the Holy Spirit works in our midst. God is sovereign. God knows everything. God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He's preparing his people so that his people will be ready. And uh, i like to uh, thank you uh, uh, guys for that song. Sometimes we need to say we're sorry for just thinking that we're coming here for us and not for him. You, uh, that, that was a prayer of confession, and we needed to say that. And uh, indeed, we, we want to sit at the feet of Jesus today, never leave the feet of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Genesis chapter 39. Um, this afternoon, I encourage you to read the, the, all of this section, uh, chapter 39 and chapter 40. Um, but I'm going to be looking at verses uh, uh, 20 and uh, reading through verses 23, so only a few verses. Most of you, uh, if you've been to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, uh, you've probably heard, heard this story, but uh, I want to look at it through the eyes of uh, our experiences uh, as adults, uh, our experiences uh, not just as adults, but our experiences uh, this past week. So looking at verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and understanding to it. Amen. So, I don't know about you, but sometimes in weeks like this, I sit and I think to myself, what is going on when evil overwhelms us? 
What's going on when evil overwhelms us? Now, notice my question there. It wasn't, why does God let bad things happen? That's not my question. It might be yours, but it's not mine. That's everyone's favorite question, as a matter of fact. I hear that question all the time. Why do bad things happen? Or even more accurately stated, as some people might say, why do bad things happen to good people? Some folks who are not believers might say that to you, and for some reason, and tons say that to me. And they think that's somehow a nuclear bomb that destroys Christianity. It isn't a new question, though. I mean, they're not the first ones to think that question up. As a matter of fact, if you go into the Bible in Luke chapter 13, Jesus references a bad situation. He talks about a tower that had fallen in the town of Siloam and how it had killed 18 people. It's in verse 4 of chapter 18. I'm sorry, chapter 13. And, and what Jesus does is in that section is he addresses the prevailing explanation that seemed to be, well, those folks must apparently been sinners and they had somehow brought that tragedy on themselves. And Jesus refutes that. He says, no, that's, that's not what happened. Those 18 people, Jesus says, were no more sinners than everyone in Jerusalem. The holy city. That place that's favored by God. And then Jesus says in verse 5 that the person who does not repent, who does not surrender, who, who, who does not receive the gift God is offering will perish just as those 18 did. That is all of us outside of Christ, Jesus is saying, all of us who are outside of Christ are without hope. And the interesting thing in that lesson there in the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't really deal with why the tower fell or how the tower fell. And that's, as I listen, that's the questions I hear most of all. How did it happen and why did it happen? And I want you to hear that that's not a question I'm asking myself. What I'm asking myself is what's going on while it's happening? As a matter of fact, throughout my adult life, particularly throughout my ministry, I've reframed that question, you know, why bad things happen to good people, multiple times. When I was first in the ministry and I was hearing these questions all the time, I would ask myself, I'd ask the Lord in prayer, I'd go to the scriptures and I'd say, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen, bad things happen to good people? I wanted to know why these things that are evil in our world seem to impact the most innocent. And then I began to really reflect on Scripture and begin to come to a, another question that isn't as popular. And some folks get angry with me when I ask this question. Maybe a better question isn't, why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe there's another question, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do, bad, why do good things happen to bad people? And then I began to understand the teachings of Jesus even more fully. And I'm not there yet, probably never will be until I close my eyes in death. 
Because the truth is that every single one of us are in bondage to corruption in the flesh. This isn't real popular. This is, the, this is the Sundays that I wish I had a bigger pulpit with bulletproof wood on the front. Because the truth is, is that there is no one who is good. All of us are bad. All of us are in rebellion to Christ. And so slowly I've come to this point where instead of looking at myself, instead of looking accusatorily at God, instead of looking accusatorily at others, Instead of saying, well, if that person would have done this, that wouldn't have happened. Instead of all of those things, all of those trajectories, all of those roads that will only lead to anger and vitriolic responses and hopelessness, I've begun to ask myself, what's going on in the midst of bad things? What's going on when evil happens? Is there something I can look at in the midst of evil? Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. Now, I have to be honest with you, I've read this story hundreds of times. I've preached on this story dozens of times. And every time I read this story, probably like you, I'm looking for, well, what happens next to Joseph? Well, what happens next to Potiphar? Well, what happens next with a Pharaoh? Well, what happens next with the people of Israel? And I never stopped before and just said, what's happening with God? What's the Lord doing? But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. Now, folks who are way smarter than me, who study these kinds of things, scholars call this the theodicy question. There, there's your seminary for the day. The theodicy question. That is this, basically. If God is all good, everybody agree with that? Let's just get you out off the fence. Does everybody agree that God is all good? There you go. Is God all powerful? Y'all agree with that? Well, if God is all good and all powerful, why do bad things happen? Okay, I'm going to have prayer. I'll see y'all next week. That's a tough question. And it's a question that's been around not just for 2,000 years since Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. It goes back all the way into the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament as well. We always like to personalize it, though, don't we? Why do bad things happen to me? Or why do bad things happen to people like me? On the day that I heard about the shooting as I drove home, I was both excited and felt guilty that I was going to be able to hug my children that night. And when they ran out to greet me, I embraced them, and they didn't pick up on it, but I was almost in tears. Because all I could think about is, is the parents in Texas who would not be able to embrace their children. People like me. People like you. Did you know that a few months ago, it was in March, a group of Al-Qaeda insurgents attacked a Christian village in Mozambique at night and began beheading children, as many as they could? Did you all know that? Wasn't in the news. 
Do y'all know that there is a regular and ongoing process of execution of Christian mothers in Nigeria? Islamic militants in Nigeria go into Christian villages, force the mothers to hold their infants, put them against a wall, and execute them by firing squad. Goes on every day, at least every week. Y'all hear about that? It's not in the news. And you know what's mind-boggling to me in all of this? Is the response of these mothers and fathers. These Nigerian mothers and fathers, these Mozambique mothers and fathers. There's no reports of any reprisals by Christians. There's no nightly raids by Christians into Muslim villages. There's no execution of Muslim children by Christians. What we see in the press that dare to report these things is through tears, mothers are sitting in their churches and thanking God for his faithfulness. I don't get it. I don't know if that'd be my response. Brothers, just my brothers out there, would that be your response? Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. So some questions come to mind. As for us, have we grown numb to the pain of violence in a land so far away? Are we deaf to the cries of mothers and fathers who happen to live in a land who's on the other side of the globe? But when evil strikes here, when it strikes in our community, as it has done right within a few miles of this place, time and time again, and then again this past week in Texas, our wounds are reopened. And we remember the trauma of some of our brothers and sisters who sit in this room today who have experienced that similar kind of evil firsthand. I think it's a fair question. It's natural to want to know how these things happen and why these things happened. We have to pay attention to this. The hurt is real. What is the church's response? What is a Christian's response to this? Some people point to the social impact of divorce and broken homes and drug abuse, parental absenteeism, especially among fathers. And as a culture, we would do well to address all of these things. As a matter of fact, our nation's strength has been and remains our process of rigorous debate and change. How do things happen is a necessary conversation, a sobering conversation. And then there's the why. It's a philosophical conversation, or as I might say, a theological conversation. That all of us have the potential for some level of evil. Now, we may not be prone to some mechanical weapons, but we can sure wield our tongue to strike deep into the hearts of those around us in gossip and spite and envy and accusations. The why for most Christians is an understanding of the human condition. We are a broken, rebellious people, a godless generation. A nation that has forgotten 
who God is. But then there's that verse 21 that keeps coming up over and over and over again. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. Now listen, I have my opinions, brothers and sisters, but when I step behind this holy desk, I tremble with fear because my call here is to speak God's counsel, not my opinions. And I need you to pray for me right now, for all of us, as we bring our anger and our fear and our grief and our own opinions to God's throne of grace. And if I have angered you because of my own foolishness, I pray that you would forgive me. But we have to go together to God's word and find hope for today. I mean you no harm, but if you'll be patient with me, I think God will reveal an answer to this question. What's going on when evil overwhelms us? Now, aside from acts of violence and injustice, it's popular to think that death is somehow natural. Some people have even said that. Death is a friend. But that wasn't the original design of the Creator. Death is a horrible reality. It is the enemy we each face at the end of our lives. Death is an awful curse that fell on creation through the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Through that sin, death came into the world, and so death spread to all humanity because all people sin. That's what the New Testament says. God did not create human beings to die, but to live. To live forever and enjoy him forever. Death was not a part of our created nature. It was only something that came about as a result of the sinful disobedience of our first parents, a sinful disobedience that has been passed down to every human since that time. And so Scripture clearly indicates that Christians too must pass through the death to life. We learn that our bodies are actually dead right now. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 10, the body is dead because of sin. And so two Christians must die. But the difference for Christians is that when we face death, we know it will not defeat us. For even though our hearts may stop beating, we know that the word of God tells us that we will never die. And on that last day, our bodies will be raised and glorified, transformed into heavenly bodies, eyes that will finally be able to gaze into the face of God. For when we die, we leave an enemy bewildered. We're shouting and laughing because Christ has defeated death. But then there are those fates worse than death. And that's where this story of Joseph, Joseph comes into focus it's heart-wrenching a favored son but hated brother a plot to kill him changed at the last minute and he sold into slavery by his brothers and a lie that ripped out the heart of his father Jacob before our text today Joseph reaches Egypt and he's sold to the servant of Pharaoh a guy named Potiphar Potiphar is married and his wife is attracted to this young Hebrew slave now, for the sake of a mixed crowd, y'all can figure this out, right? She pursues Joseph, and in verse 10, we see the pressure. And she spoke to Joseph day after day. That is, as day after day, she was trying to get something from Joseph that Joseph knew he ought not to be given to her. How would we react with that relentless pursuit of temptation in our life? And yet, even in her relentlessness, Joseph refuses over and over again. If anybody is righteous in this story, it is Joseph. And what is the response to his righteousness? Well, one day she grabs him. And he pulls away from her. And as he leaves the house, she's able to pull off his outer garment. 
And in her anger at having been spurned, she calls her husband, shows him the garment, and says that Joseph attacked her. Not the other way around. Joseph, this faithful son of his father Jacob, a faithful servant in his master's house, loyal to Potiphar, her husband, respectful to Potiphar's wife so as to not make her a harlot. He's done everything right. In the early years of the Reformation, we Protestants taught that the commandment against adultery and the commandment against coveting were closely linked and that God's intention was not only that we should just refrain from adultery, but as Martin Luther said, we should urge them to stay. That is, as we would encourage and facilitate strong marriages. That's why we offer programs and ministries and classes here like Reconnected and Fight Your Way to a Better Marriage. Here's the thing. Joseph was doing everything right. Faithful to his master, respectful of his master's wife, obedient to his God. And what happened? A fate worse than death. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. So now Joseph's in prison. And like when he was in the house of, the, uh, of Potiphar, Instead of the rage and the rebellion and the hopelessness that he should have felt, Joseph becomes a loyal and faithful prisoner. What? Would you have done that? Would I have done that? In verse 22, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison prayed no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now you'd think at some point this story would chill out a little. But it doesn't. It gets worse. In chapter 40, we see another incident in Joseph's life. Pharaoh's royal cupbearer and baker offend Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh throws them into prison too. And they're with Joseph. They both have dreams that confuse them. And like when Joseph was able to explain dreams to his brothers so many years ago, he finds himself gifted by God to explain dreams. He explains the dreams to the cupbearer and the baker. For the cupbearer, the dream is good. He will be released and restored. For the baker, not so much. He will be executed. And it comes to pass, just like Joseph said. And Joseph says, he asks the cupbearer, just mention me when you are before Pharaoh so that I might be released and restored. It's the least thing that could happen, right? We would expect now finally things are going to go well. Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And it hurts to be forgotten. We would do well to not forget. This Memorial Day, where around three million soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines died in defense of our nation. We would do well not to forget those families in anguish who have lost their children and those who survived who live with the memories of violence. We would do well to remember and embrace and support and love those 
who continue to struggle with the trauma. So what is going on when evil overwhelms us? We always want easy answers, don't we? Here's what goes on. We weep. Our Lord wept. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Yet like the African mothers have shown us, as they have wept and prayed, we do not sorrow in the same ways as those who have no hope. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. This pain is part and parcel of grieving. It is to be understood, not resisted. How do we understand grief? Well, for most of us, grieving is a journey. It's a journey that won't take place in just the course of a few hours or even a few days. For some, grief is a companion all of their life. It's a journey from the initial pain of separation, but it's a journey toward healing. And this day, this week, yet again, we are a grieving nation. And grief has many dimensions and may seem unpredictable in its ebb and flow, yet in Christ we find strength along the way, for in this journey we are not alone. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. For some of us, family and friends are God's gift to help us bear the pain of loss, which at times is unbearable. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Above all, as Christians who mourn, the best thing that we could have done today, the best thing that our nation can do today is to turn to the worship fellowship of the church and the comfort of God's holy word and his table, for it is here that Christ heals. It's here where we hear the words that one day we too shall stand with the great multitude of heaven who hear this voice from Revelation 21. At the end of your Bible, amidst all of the grief, amidst all of the pain, is the word of God that says, Now the dwelling of God is with men and women, with fathers and with mothers. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And with you, as we sit together at the feet of Jesus, I can feel his hand 
as he reaches down to wipe away our tears. And it's not just something that I seek to grasp, but there are words that I hold on to and refuse to let go of. That someday, may it be soon, pain and death and evil will finally be fully defeated. And because I hold on to the master, I refuse to succumb to it today.